Yeah, good evening. Hi, welcome. My name is Morgan, the lead pastor here. Merry Christmas to you. It's a great video, huh? I like that, and it's a, a great story it talks about. But um, I think that uh, for some of us, actually, that sounds too good to be true. Maybe if I were even to press you a little bit tonight, you'd say, it's not just too good to be true. It's too unbelievable to be true. The whole thing kind of sounds unbelievable because I think for a lot of us, maybe as we've grown up, as we've grown older, that we've, we can tend, or maybe we have even some of us, filed away the Christmas story alongside that other really big Christmas story we tell about the one with the guy who can travel at light speed all around the world in 24 hours, who can eat 12 billion Christmas cookies in one night with no medical repercussions, right? We we tell that story, yeah, but we can put Christmas in the same file as that. Maybe uh, we call that file the myth file, or we call it the file called Nice Try, or the file called uh, maybe Once Upon a Time, but not anymore for me. I know too much now because it all sounds too Unbelievable. I mean, look at where the whole thing begins. The whole thing kind of begins in an unbelievable place. The Christmas story doesn't actually begin with Mary or Joseph or with a baby or in Bethlehem. It actually begins with a woman, actually an older woman. She's Mary's cousin. Her name is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's got a husband named Zachariah. And the Christmas story begins with them because an angel, and we'll get back to the angels and the unbelievable stuff about them in a minute, but an angel comes to Zachariah and says, I know that you're too old to have a baby. You and your wife are past the age where you can have children, but you're going to have a baby, and that baby's going to grow up, and he's going to be kind of like an announcer. He's going to be like a herald. He's going to proclaim the the truth of God. He's going to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah to come. And and, and, God's made a promise. He's going to keep his promise. And you think, well, that, that sounds nice, but then... You know, when you do a little digging, you find out that Zachariah's name means God remembers, and Elizabeth's name means God's promise, and you think, hang on, wait a second, this sounds like a setup, like too good to be true, you know, like somebody made this up, because the first people in the whole story, the first people who get anything here, their names actually mean together, God remembers, God's promise, sounds too good to be true. Then the story moves on to Mary, and we all know the unbelievable part uh, about Mary, because another, yes, another angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And, and this would have been great news for her, because every Jewish woman knew that one day that God had promised to send the Messiah into the world, and one day one mom would win like the mom of the year prize, right? She gets a bear this child. And this was good news to Mary, but that wasn't the unbelievable part. To Mary, the unbelievable part would have been where the angel gave her the line that none of you should ever use (laughs) with your parents or your spouse. You know, the whole God's the father of the baby line. I mean, could you imagine, imagine you're a young teenage girl, you're promised to be married because that's how it worked in those days. You were promised to be married and then you, you came to your parents and you say, Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant. And they say, 
okay, well, we know how this goes sometimes. And, okay, sweetie, we're actually, we're kind of glad the Romans are in charge now. They've, they've done away with our capital punishment laws based on Jewish law stuff. So thank goodness you and Joseph don't have to be stoned uh, anymore. You're going to live. That's, that's good news. But sweetie, you're going to have to go away for a while. But then could you imagine Mary says, no, mom, dad, that's not the case. You know, Joseph's not the father. And they say, well, okay, you know, late on, this is getting worse all the time. Who is? God is the father. This actually is right here. I think this is where we can be kind of patronizing towards ancient people because we think that Mary was just kind of gullible. She's like, sure, yeah, angel shows up. She'll believe anything. But no, but look at, at Mary's response to the angel, she asks what you would have asked had you been there and gotten that news. She asks the right question. She asks, but how can this be? <laughs> and the reason she asks this is not just because she knows how the whole making a baby thing works, because she knows that already, but, but the fact was no one in the Jewish community actually expected the Messiah to come through a virgin birth. And yes, the gospel writers, they looked back and they said, aha, yes, that's what that verse in Isaiah was all about. We see it now. But the fact was, in their day, they did not expect this. And actually, this whole idea would have been unbelievably offensive to them. Because the Greek and the Roman gods were always doing this. Their God, Yahweh, the one true God, he did not do this. And in Roman mythology, the gods were always coming down and impregnating human women, right? I mean, anybody remember Hercules, right? Half man, half God, who was the father. Hercules, it was. Yes, come now, class. Yes, Zeus is right. Yeah, two of you have been to school. Great, all right. Uh, Zeus was, right? And so, but Yahweh, he didn't do this. He didn't have children with humans. And so when the angel says to Mary, God will be the father. Oh, what's her reaction? Same as yours would have been. How can this be? Why would God do that? And see, this whole part, it's actually counterproductive to the story. Jesus' following was built later on his teaching, on his resurrection, not on his birth. See, the Gospels were written years after his life on earth. So for Matthew to go back and write this part up, for the Gospel writers to include this part would have only weakened their case. They were just trying to get someone to believe in Jesus. I mean, if you were trying to get people to believe your story, the, you, you wouldn't have a reason to include this. The only reason you would ever include the one thing that everyone knew was impossible to happen, and that was offensive to their minds was if were actually true. But the real reason, I think, underneath all of this, that this sounds so unbelievable, is that many times, if not all the time, we don't believe that God can actually do the impossible in our lives. We don't believe it. Because that's what the virgin birth means. It means God can do the impossible. And that's why the angel says that exact thing to Mary. I don't know if you remember that part. Uh, because when Mary asks, well, how can this be? What does the angel say? angel says, with God, all things are possible. 
But you think, oh, that's too much for me to believe. That's too unbelievable. Maybe some nice things happen for some nice people sometime, and yeah, they call that prayer, but that's more like dumb luck, or they were lucky enough to be born in the right nation or the right people with the right skin color or the right neighborhood with the right parents. It's too unbelievable. Speaking of unbelievable, what about those those uh, angels, right? Who keep showing up in the story? I mean, you read it; it's like all angels all the time. The angel network, apparently. And there's angel there with Zachariah, then with Mary, then with Joseph, then the shepherds. You're thinking, come on, right? I mean, angels already. Demons? Do people really still believe in this stuff anymore? Listen. To the majority of the world, the idea of angels, of demons, of Satan, spiritual warfare actually helps them make sense of the world. If you you go to Latin America, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, the vast majority of people believe in a dark, supernatural realm. They understand it to be true, so at least in the interests of not looking down our nose at the rest of the world, we ought to consider what the Bible has claimed all along. That there are both good and bad supernatural beings. And let me tell you why I think you should at least, even if you're the biggest skeptic in the world on Christmas Eve, you should at least want this angel part to be true. Here's why. Because when our culture, when you ask, what's wrong with the world? Like, what's wrong with people today? Why is there evil our culture says everything has a natural cause. It's just bad genetics. You know, you had bad parents or you had a bad education, bad psychology, or there's regressive religion. You know, religion poisons everything. We think everything in the world's got a natural cause, so we think we can fix everything with a natural cause. We can eliminate bad things through education alone, through activism alone, through information alone, through restructuring social systems alone. But let me tell you something. If you believe that, that's naive. That's naive. And I call as my first witness on Christmas Eve, Nazi Germany. One of the most ruthless cultures that ever lived. Who are these people, right? Some of the most cultured, some of the most wealthy, educated people in their day. They had science, philosophy, national identity. And what did they do? Oh, they weaponized all of it. Do you really think, do we really want to say the evil of the Nazis was due to a lack of education? I think part of the reason we fail to defeat evil in our lives or in our own nation is because we don't really believe it exists in the first place. Because how can you defeat something that doesn't really exist? Our culture can't answer that question. Hear me. The Christmas story can. Because the Christmas story says this. There is a supernatural world. And therefore, all the evil in the world can't just be reduced to people's Mistakes and bad choices. Listen, if you already believe or you're willing to accept, there's a good, benevolent, supernatural, all-powerful, maybe God somewhere, then it's not illogical at all to believe in dark, evil, supernatural things. As a matter of fact, it's more illogical to not believe they exist. See, what we find, what I think we find unbelievable about the angels in the story is that they point, they insist on the reality that there is a larger supernatural world. And I think you and I, we should want those angels to be real because of that very reason. 
They show us a power greater than the power of evil in the world. And if you lose the angels, you lose that. You lose the ability to defeat evil. Well, what about the other unbelievable parts of the story, Morgan? You know, I think you're just getting going. You know, you may have a checklist here. How about this? What about where Jesus was born? I mean, right? I mean, if you were trying to get the world's attention and prove to the world beyond a shadow of a doubt you were God and people should follow you and believe in you and like you, why would you choose to be born in? And by the way, it was likely not an inn, likely not a Middle Eastern motel in that day. It was more likely a family member's home because where were Joseph and Mary headed to? Back to where? Bethlehem. Because of Caesar Augustus's taxation, you know, tax the world plan, which actually makes it doubly sad because that means it wasn't an innkeeper. It wasn't a motel keeper who put him out in the garage with the animals. It was actually Joseph's own family that Christmas Eve because they didn't want an unwed teenage mother in the house with them. Oh, See, this is unbelievable. Why would you choose to be born there if you were trying to prove who you were to the world? I mean, it's unbelievable. Here's why. Because many of us think the point of God's existence is to prove his own existence to us. We think of him like a candidate who's competing for our vote. And if he gives us enough facts and evidence and gives us enough persuasive speeches, we'll vote for him. Maybe ask him into our lives. But what's unbelievable about it is the thought of, you know, a king, the God king being born in a bunch of animals in a filthy outhouse because his father's family didn't like his mom? Well, that's so strange and weird. Listen, important, we think important people, they don't do this, right? Important people do what? They go on nationwide speaking tours. They do F-15 flyovers. They run out big stadiums and charter buses, but not this. But what if... What if God didn't exist just to prove his own existence to us? What if what the Bible says is true, which is this, which is that we all know deep down that there really is a God. There's a super intellect who made everything somehow. And because we all know this deep down, we feel threatened by his existence and we'll use anything. We'll use information. We use the hypocrisy of other people in churches. We use anything to get away from him. And therefore, what if, because he knows this, what if God wasn't trying as much to prove something to win our minds as he was trying to do something to woo our hearts? I'll say it again. What if God wasn't trying to prove something to win our minds as he was trying to do something to woo our hearts? ask you, what moves your heart? I mean, what makes you want to move toward another person? Listen, it's not just power alone, you know this, but it's softness, it's vulnerability, it's nearness, it's presence, it's empathy. And when, therefore, you see the Christmas story telling you that God came to earth in the form of a baby, that's what you're seeing. Not a God trying to come like a dictator and take over your heart. Not like a candidate trying to come and prove to you who he is or she is and earn your vote. But God is coming like a lover 
trying to woo and mend your broken heart. And that thought brings me to the part I think is the most unbelievable part about the Christmas story overall. And the most unbelievable part isn't a place or a person. But the most unbelievable part, I think, is an idea. Because what's so unbelievable about the story is how unbelievably beautiful it is. Oh, it's the beauty of this story. It's so unbelievable. The whole thing is just so just crazy. It's hard to believe. I mean, God becoming a baby and vulnerable. That's it's kind of cute, you know. That the shepherd outcasts hearing this story, they go from second class citizens to the most honored people in the story. And it's the second class who were the first to hear. There's singing in the sky, lights at night, and nobody family about to become world famous forever. It's beautiful. And here's how I know it's beautiful. Because look at all the beauty. It's inspired. I mean, when you when you drive home tonight, what are you likely going to see? What? Christmas lights, right? Beautiful lights, beautiful decorations all over the city. What did we sing tonight? What's been written for the last thousand years or so? Beautiful music. And what do you what do you send in the mail? The cards with your very best beautiful picture on them, right? Even if that moment only happened after hours of makeup. <laughs> or lots of bribery and promises of gifts and candy for your kids, right? What if painters painted, artists created, oh, despite our modern cynicism, other trying to capture beauty, the beauty of Christmas. And this, hear me, this is a beauty that skepticism, that doubt, that atheism can't Create as healthy as all those things can be in their place. So, listen, no songs are written about the beauty of a world with no God. <laughs> no songs or, or painters or paintings are created about how much we feel love because we're all there is in the world. There's no God. And there's nothing when we die. There's no beauty. And that, you say, well, wasn't there that one song from that ex Beatle guy about, I imagine there's no heaven somewhere? I think I, I heard that one. That idea, no heaven, no hell, that sounds nice for the rich in the West. But for the global poor of the world, that's a double curse. Are you, you look them in the eye and tell them there's no way all the wrongs can be righted. There's no justice for your suffering. It's a double curse for them. But do you know what can make all the wrongs right in the end? Oh, it's not power alone. It certainly isn't. Guilt. The Christmas story says that beauty in the long run can. A few years ago, there was a professor at Harvard, a lady named Elaine Scarry. She's on YouTube. She lectures a lot. It's some good stuff. But a little book called On Beauty and Being Just, Scintillating Title. Yes. Dr. Scarry writes on the lectures on the power of beauty. And she says this quote Beauty transfixes us takes the individual away from the center of preoccupation of self. Meaning it cuts through how unhappy you are many times. And prompts the redistribution of attention toward others. And she's right. And here's how that looks. England, 1741, there was a down-on-his-luck composer named George. George was given a book at his low moment, a book about the life of Jesus Christ. And he went home and he read it. 
and his life was changed. And he was so inspired by this book, he locked himself in his room for three weeks and didn't come out until he had composed what we now know as Handel's Messiah. Because that's who he was and what he wrote. And, but you may not know what happened, why he was writing it. A number of times during the creation of the Messiah, his servants or friends would overtake him and find him and see tears streaming down his face as his face glowing and Handel said one time he said I did think I did see all of heaven open and the great God himself he said that after finishing what we now know as the hallelujah chorus a piece of music so beautiful it caused the king of England to stand at his feet when he heard it of course the royal court followed suit and that's why people stand when it's sung today and that's a great story but it gets even better. Because Messiah appeared when it premiered on April 13, 1742. It premiered at Handel's insistence as a charity concert and performance. And he raised so much money, it freed 142 men from debtor's prison who had been there, condemned to a life in jail. And over the years, until his death, Handel personally conducted so many charity performances of this that one of his biographers wrote, he said, Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan more than any other single musical production in this or any country. Another wrote, perhaps the works of no other composer have so largely contributed to the relief of human suffering. Let me ask you, what moved Handel to do this? Maybe it was an encounter with the law, not just an idea, not with religion, not with a moral, not with doubt. It was an encounter with beauty itself. Why? Because beauty transfixed him, moved him away from himself, and caused him to move toward others. And if God is really real, and he really is the ultimate beauty, oh, then what is Christmas? Hear me. It's beauty become true. It's God moving away from himself, moving toward others, coming towards us in Jesus. Christmas is Jesus, the ultimate beauty, giving up his ultimate place, moving towards you and coming for you and you and you and you. It's the unbelievable, coming believable. Christmas is the fairy tale become fact. And tonight, Maybe, if you never have before, or it's been a long time tonight, you too can believe.